Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. A three-year-old asks her physician father about his job, and his inability to provide a succinct and accurate answer inspires a critical look at the profession of modern medicine. In sorting throughout patients, insurance companies, advertising agencies, Filmmakers and comedians misconstrue a doctor's role. My guest, Andrew Bombeck, realizes that even doctors struggle to define their profession. As the author attempts to unravel how much of doctoring is role-playing, artifice, and bluffing, he examines the career of his father, a legendary pediatrician on the verge of retirement, and the health of his infant son, who is suffering from a vague assortment of gastrointestinal symptoms. At turn, serious, comedic, analytic, and confessional, Doctor offers an unflinching look at what it means to be a physician today. Doctor is a great book, and Andrew and I had a great conversation about it. I give you Andrew Bombeck. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. This is a real honor. Yeah, it's great to have you on, and you have written a book recently called Doctor. Just a simple, uh, simple, elegant title, and it's part of a series that's really interesting. It actually tells the, basically tells the story of things that are basically most of them are one-word titles about something that we all are familiar with the terminology, but yet maybe we don't we we don't think about how much in everyday life, you know, it, it, there is behind the title. And yours was doctoring. And this is fascinating because you explain a lot that probably most people don't know. Everybody goes to the doctors, but they're not thinking probably uh, about some of the subtleties that you describe. How did you how did you get approached to write this or did you approach the publisher? Um, I, I had actually written an essay for the series. This, they have a series of essays in The Atlantic um, and then they publish books through Bloomsbury. So I had written an essay on the stethoscope uh, for the Atlantic's essay series. And then based on that, I pitched an entire book about doctors uh, sort of building off that idea. So the essay about the stethoscope was um, essentially saying that the stethoscope is a symbol and patients put a lot of, uh, put a lot of uh, faith in that symbol, uh, whereas doctors really are wearing it more as like a prop, but we don't actually... Uh, get a lot of utility out of it. So that was sort of the first time I sort of scratched at this idea that uh, there's more than meets the eye uh, in, in modern medicine. And so I expanded that to uh, get into many more topics in medicine. Yeah. And your dad was a physician, right? You talk about the book in the book, how your dad was like the kind of, he's like the quintessential stereotypical physician that people think yeah. about. He's a pediatrician. He's, he's this, I was thinking about, I don't know if you've ever seen the show lost. Uh, I have not. It was incredibly popular, but the, the, the guy, the main character, Jack Shepard's dad is a doctor. And I'm like picturing this guy who was, he was older than Jack, of course. And, and it was this sort of quintessentially respected doctor. It's funny because you talk about these, if you Google a picture of, doctors on the internet that 
they always wear their stethoscope like an accessory, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, with one yeah. side on the one side, like like sort of like a scarf or something. Yeah, and like that, a scarf or a necklace or something where it's definitely there for show. And, and that nobody really does that, right? Well, I think as my dad is is the old school doctor who wears it really clasped behind his neck, and I, I make the point that the way my dad wears it, which is actually a little bit less comfortable than just wearing it like a scarf, but the way he wears it, you could just pop the their pieces in and go right to work. So it's almost like he's showing, yes, I'm going to use the stethoscope and I, I put a, I need it. Whereas when people wear it like a scarf, it really is more just like an accessory, like part of our, our uniform. And, um, you know, my dad is sort of like a doctor from, from TV. Um, I don't know the lost doctor, but he really is sort of the doctor that you would envision from like old school, like Nick at night type TV shows. Like he's like the family doctor, who everybody knows in town. He goes to people's houses. He takes phone calls late at night. He's, a, he's, he's the type of doctor that every patient would really want. And one of the, the, the themes that I address in my book is that his brand of doctoring is really becoming extremely antiquated. And it doesn't really fit the way most modern doctors view their job. Like my dad is a model of what a doctor should be um, in the old days, but whether or not that model can still exist today, I think is very difficult. Yeah, it's interesting because you talk about in the in the beginning of the book you, this conversation you had with your daughter, and she asks you sort of what do you do, and you're explaining, and, and you're you're thinking about how to explain this to her, and 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 you think, well, actually, I talk to people mostly, like w- w- which isn't, I don't think, what most people would say inside or outside the profession instinctively or reflexively but that's that's at the heart of what you do right is communication and yet so much of what it seems like the profession's becoming mitigates a lot of the conversational dimension of 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 the calling it sounds like you're saying yeah i mean i think one of the things that i learned a lot about my profession in writing this book is what what you what you just said that the, the heart of being a doctor today is is communication and it's it was probably the heart of being a doctor years ago as well but the um the the way we communicate now has really changed compared to the way doctors communicated in the past now a doctor can communicate without necessarily talking to a patient you know we get these computer generated letters that will just send letters to our patients and we can email with our patients and text with our patients and a lot of the sort of face-to-face or heart-to-heart conversations that I think were the hallmarks of really effective doctoring in the past have been replaced to some degree by technology. But I still think at its heart, the best doctor, the best doctor-patient relationship is all about communication. And that's really one of the things I try to explore in this book is, um, you know, what makes a good doctor? Is it technical skill? Probably to some degree, but I think what makes an exceptional doctor from the patient standpoint is is communication skill and how well a doctor communicates to a patient and really does a lot of teaching with patients and lets them know this is what's wrong, this is what I think will help, and this is how I think we can get there. Yeah, and you talk a lot in the book about the difference of expectations between doctors and patients and how different that can be and, and, and how the expectations game can really be something difficult to negotiate, right, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I think that's one of the tricky parts is that 
um, I think patients want their doctors to really only be their be their doctor, like to essentially have no no life beyond just being their doctor twenty four seven. And also, they want their doctors to often be miracle workers when those types of miracles can't be achieved. And you know, I know from my own perspective, when I've needed a doctor, and I write about this in a in the book uh, in terms of when my son was sick, um, I expected those same sort of miracles out of my own family's uh, physicians. Um, and it's tricky because it's hard for doctors to acknowledge our own limitations. Um, we do it a lot more uh, openly when we talk to other doctors, but when we talk to patients, I think we know that there is a fair amount of expectation on their part and we don't want to let the patient down. Uh, I get into a little bit of, you know, some doctors never wanting to say they don't know something, um, that there's a fair amount of bluffing that, that some doctors do just because they don't want to, uh, essentially drop a patient's expectations. And, and that may sound like really awful for, uh, as a confession of a doctor to say sometimes we bluff, but there is probably some therapeutic, uh, some therapeutic value to that bluffing. So um, one of the things that I'm very interested in and I touch upon in the book is um, the placebo effect. And a lot of people think about placebo effect mostly in, in the vein of a pill, but there's also a placebo effect just in the expectations that patients have and the way doctors can meet that expectation. So if a patient really thinks this doctor is the best doctor and this doctor is going to make me better, that patient has a much better chance of getting better than if a patient says, well, this doctor, you know, is just out of training. They don't really have good recommendations on the web. I just got them because my insurance company assigned me to them. They're less likely to do well just based on that lower expectation. So we all know about the placebo effect. There's actually something called the nocebo effect where negative expectations can lead to negative outcomes. So the bluffing that doctors do trying to meet these expectations sometimes is, is necessary. Yeah, I feel like I, it almost sounds like what you're talking about is like psychosomatic realities. When people say that, I feel like they th- think like that's something not real. No, but no, like like our own psyche affects our body, right? Like, like our attitudes, our stress level, uh, whether we're hopeful or not hopeful, th- these things really have an effect on the, the body is an organic emerging system, right? And these things are, are these intangibles have a really tangible effect. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get too new agey because I'm, I'm really not that type of doctor in my practice. In fact, I'm the exact opposite. Like I'm a hyper specialist um, who's, who works at a tertiary care academic center in, in New York city. But I, I do feel that some of that mind over, over body medicine has a big sway even in my practice. You know, I, I've often recommended to patients to use guided meditation videos on YouTube to help them sleep. Um, I've often, you know, talked to patients about the importance of eating right, sleeping right, exercising, all these things that, you know, are sort of common sense to be more healthy. They, they also have a really profound impact on just how the patient approaches his or her health overall. You, it is interesting. You mentioned that that you know you you are afraid to say something like "I don't know" in front of patients, or, or a lot many doctors are. You also talk. You have a great section of the book about jokes. My, my wife is a nurse practitioner, and I, uh, it, it's funny. You mentioned the Gomer blog. Once in a while, she'll share things from the Gomer blog. Like, I mean, you do have this great section in your book. She jokes about her hospital's medical 
statement, you know, these the, these slogans, the vision statements. You talk about this uh, this medical humor thing on Glomer on Gomer blog where they're like realistic ones, like death is inevitable, yeah. <laughs> underpaid, underachieving, <laughs> quantity not quality. Like these are often things like doctors would joke about that these are really at the practice of the hospital. But you say you you don't joke in front of patients though, like it, yeah. it's it's for fear of dispelling like the the myth or the magic, right? I, I, it's, it's so true. So, I mean, I think doctors tell jokes all the time to each other. Um, we need jokes to just lighten our load because we, we deal with so much sickness and so much death. And sometimes we just need to be able to laugh about it. Um, but we don't joke in front of patients because I don't think patients really want to think of a doctor's job and a doctor's subject, you know, their life and death as anything funny. And as an example, I was giving a reading from this book in Washington, D.C., where I didn't really know anybody in the audience. And I, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll read the chapter about doctor jokes because that'll, be, that'll go over great with the audience. It's almost like doing a little bit of stand-up. You know, I'll just read a bunch of jokes. And the audience laughed at the first joke in the chapter. But after that, they didn't laugh at any of the jokes in the chapter. And you could tell, at least the way I perceived it, was they, they were almost offended by these doctor jokes because they come one after another in the book. And I think they were sort of wondering, like, who is this guy up here telling all these crass doctor jokes? Like, I thought, you know, he's supposed to be a compassionate healer. Like, what's he doing up here? And I guess that chapter taken out of context really does seem very crass. Um, but hopefully within the context of the book, um, I show why doctors tell the jokes, why we tell them to each other. And I just didn't take my own lesson. I shouldn't have told them to a, to a room full of uh, people in a bookstore who didn't know me. Yeah. And yeah, that is like, it's interesting because yeah, like I get that. I get why they might not think it's funny. And yet this is part of what is a struggle, right? Because you, you contrast, you know, y your dad who like doctoring is his whole identity. It sounds like in many ways, like he, you say like he can't imagine retiring and, and, and this is just so much. I love the story you say on the, on the, on the soccer field. He was this, the, the most powerful adult was the coach. The second most powerful adult was your dad. Cause he would, if someone was tripped or was hurt and he ran out there, he was, he was the doctor. Right. And, right. and so in some sense, it seems like, I, I don't know if this is typical of your generation of physician, but, but it certainly seems like what you're looking for is a more integrated personal identity uh, you know where, where doctors are more human mm -hmm. and yet these things like not being able to tell jokes except other doctors seems to reinforce or patients not being able to hear jokes about it seems to reinforce the non-humanity uh, of, uh, of the doctor yeah i could see that you're right it, it's a little bit of a contradiction um it's hard i mean i think i think as a doctor who's sort of mid-career i still struggle i still struggle with this because I do to some degree, and, and some of this actually gets a little bit easier the more experienced you are, where where you can sort of trust that your patients no longer question you, and and they they trust in you, and then they can see you, you know, as a human beyond just being a doctor. And perhaps it's more of a of a problem when you're younger and you're trying to carve out an identity for patients. But um, I just know that my dad was very seamless um, about sort of blending in his professional life and his personal life outside of the clinic setting or outside of the hospital setting. So we'd be out to dinner and people would come up to him at the table and he just was so comfortable in his skin as a doctor in public. Same thing at the soccer field. Like he's just very, he, he really sort of never felt that at any point in time, the doctor 
role was was shut down. Like he always felt he could call it up at any moment. Whereas with me, you know, the few times I've run into patients in the in the community, uh, especially when I'm with my family, I always feel very awkward about it because I, you know, I'm I'm in my family man role, not my doctor role. And sometimes these two don't always don't always blend so well. And uh, it just doesn't come as natural to me as it came to someone like my father. And I think it just, you know, one of the things that I try to, you know, detail in the book is that that generation of doctors like my father, they really viewed it as a calling. And my generation of doctors often view it as a job, um, just like any other job. And I, that that probably is a bad thing. Um, at least for, I'm sure patients would consider that a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, you think of like this, I mean, the, the idea of calling vocation, vocatio, it involves there's a sacredness to it, right? Like one calls yeah. you, there's something transcendent that, you know, that, that yeah, that, that it's a sacred trust. Yeah, no, I do. I, I mean, I think in the book, I'm not sure if this part got cut out, but I do think it's in the book. Um, I, I talk about a patient who I meet for the first time who's an undertaker, uh, or like works at a funeral home, and he talks about how that, I see, you know, I say, wow, that must be a really hard job dealing with people who are at their saddest, you know, they just lost a family member. And he's saying, well, it's a calling, you know, I'm sure you understand as a doctor, you like, you know, this, you, you, you get that call in the middle of the night from a grieving family. It's, it's a privilege to be on that end of the call. And, you know, it's, that's a beautiful sentiment, but I will tell you that most doctors, when they get called at three or four in the morning, their first inclination is not to be like, this is a beautiful moment. I'm like, you know, this is my vocation to answer phone calls at three or four in the morning. Most doctors are actually grumble like, Oh, what, what is it now? What is it this time? So it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's a constant struggle. And I think some of it is just that medicine has become really hard uh, to practice. And it's hard on the, on the practitioner that we have to do this balance between we love what we do, but we also need to set limits on it so that we don't burn out so quickly. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. In the book, you talk about 
this a, a sort of resident you had or something or somebody that was a supervisor that that said you're going to put a central line in every admission like we'll just yeah. figure out how to he was kind of you say he's kind of a cowboy and and by the end of it you'll be the best at putting in central lines right and you have this great line you said a doctor can talk themselves in or out of anything and you know i just had somebody on the show that i think it was the last guest a guy named brian vandemark who wrote this amazing history of vietnam called road to disaster and he the first 100 pages he spends looking at all sort of psychological and social science research about why people can't admit they're wrong right and why basically you'll double down very often when you're wrong or and how you can talk yourself into anything and how very oftentimes the mo when you need the sort of self-awareness to not double down it's hard to do it and I mean that's I, I want I guess that's also sort of not comforting to patients to know that doctors are as delusional as everybody else in that way, right? As foreign policy yeah. experts or corporation or CEOs and upper management that make weird business decisions that aren't very self-aware. I mean, this this everybody's vulnerable to this, including people that we trust our health with. Yeah, I mean, I I, I hope that doctors don't don't run that line. You know, like firmly, you know, one of the, one of the ways we criticize doc, like one of the way as a, as a doctor, I would criticize another doctor as I say, Oh, sometimes wrong, but never in doubt. Like that's, that's one of the ways we can like actually poke at another doctor. So, I mean, we are trained to keep some degree of an open mind. You know, one of the th first things you learn as a medical student is to develop what's called the differential diagnosis where you say, Oh, it's probably diagnosis a, but let me say what B, C, D, E, and F are just in case so we can actually uh, make sure we're not missing any of the less common things. Um, but you're right. I think when you get passionate about something, um, it's hard to say that you're wrong or it's hard to, en to enter doubt into the decision-making process. And, um, you know, that's, that's where good colleagues actually can be very helpful. Um, and I think one of the, one of the, the best parts about medicine uh, from the doctoring side is the collegiality when it works. When you have one doctor sort of very respectfully say, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Um, to make sure that you're not sort of blindly just pushing on. But you, but to some degree, what I wrote there, you know, doctors can talk themselves in or out of anything, I, I do think is true for a lot of medicine. Um, we often have to make tough decisions and we often will validate it to ourselves. Well, this is the reason why I did it. Even if you if we were looking at it objectively, um, we might not have, have been so confident in that decision. So um, when you're doing something that's very high risk, high reward, a lot of times you need to sort of be as confident as you can be. And some of that is some degree of talking yourself into something or talking yourself out of something. How many of your close friends that you regularly connect with are not physicians? That's a great question. So... Um, I would say it's probably 50 50. Um, many of my close friends are, are physicians and, and there is an intimacy in the friendship that I don't have with non-physicians. Um, like when I get together with, uh, I mean, well, let me start by saying almost all of my friends nowadays are parents of parents of my kids' friends. But when I, when I interact with them, when I socialize with them and one of those parents is a doctor, there's just this ease of language and this ease ease of common references um, where we just we, we know what each other is going through that I don't get, for example, with lawyers or teachers or finance people or people in the creative arts. Um, and 
I don't know if I'm, we're necessarily seeking each other out, but I would say, you know, of, of my, my friendship group where I live, probably my closest friends, um, are probably 50, 50 doctors and non-doctors. Um, and I think that's probably true if I just go do a catalog of my life, like, you know, my friends from high school, college, medical school, I've, I've retained so many more friends from medical school than I've retained from high school and college. Um, and I think it's to some degree because we live this life now and we, we all have the same daily, uh, daily issues. You don't have to translate for, we don't have to translate. Yeah. No, I mean, there, there's a part that I cut out of the book, but which I thought was really interesting where, we were, were, were at a brunch where it's my wife and I and then another couple and we're all doctors and we're all just basically, while our kids are playing, we're all just trying to outdo each other with these nursing stories where we say like, oh, who can tell the story about the, the nurse that was the least helpful? And it's just like, it's such a, like, it's the same kind of conversation you would have not just at a brunch, but you would have in a doctor's lounge or in a doctor's cafeteria or on a shuttle between hospitals. There's, there's like this very like shorthand language that you have with each other. Um, or you have these conversations like who's, who witnessed the worst death or who had to, who was on the call the longest with an insurance company. Like all these, all these battles that we fight on a daily basis, we, we don't have to catch people up, right? We, everybody speaks the same language. Uh, because that, are there things that close friends who are not physicians see that also they see, see more clearly maybe because, I mean, that's part of like, uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, uh, Moral psychology said, you know, morality, it binds, it, bi- it evolutionary binds p- people together, but it also blinds, right? Because we're in the group think. I mean, are there, are there things that are blinders in that and those friendships too where, gosh, because we all spend so much time in this world, we, it, it, the outside eye sometimes see it in a way that, gosh, it, you know, it, it, as a fish, you can't think of, about the water you're swimming in. No, I totally think that's, that's probably the biggest problem with the grind of modern medicine is that we often forget the outsider perspective like we often forget what patients are hearing from us and that's why to go back to what you said earlier about communication being the hallmark of of medicine i really do think that's the case because to me at every point in time we need to take some degree of a step back and just say well how did the patient just process um what i said and um it's it's the type of thing where you 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 tell a patient Oh, uh, in my, for my, for my, my type of medicine, which is kidneys, I tell a patient, your kidneys have failed. You're going to need dialysis. You're going to need a transplant. And I often will say, we're going to work to get you a kidney transplant. I, I, I hope that I'm giving them a message of optimism. Oh, you know, even though your kidneys have failed, we're going to get you a new organ. You're going to get a fresh start on life. But, you know, the, if you take a step back, the impact of a doctor saying to you, your vital organs no longer are working for you. Um, you know, you're incredibly sick. There's a huge subtext in that conversation, um, which I, you know, I constantly have to remind myself because you, you forget it. And so I do think there is this danger of, of us forgetting the patient perspective. If you were going to say to listeners, look, the next time you go to the doctors, the most important thing you could keep in mind is how would you finish the sentence? It's a really good question. I think the most important thing I would say to patients, if they want to get the most out of their visits, is um, pre-plan. So decide what you want out of the visit um, and make sure you don't leave the doctor's office without getting whatever it is you wanted. So sometimes when I'm in a, a less, than optimist, less than optimal 
patient encounter, I'll actually stop and I'll just say to the patient, what did you want out of today's clinic visit? Like when you came here, what were you hoping would, would happen from today's clinic visit? And that's a really nice way to reset things because then the patient tells me in his or her own words, this is what I want you to do. And then I say, okay, I can do that or I can't do that, but here's what I can do instead. And I do think that's really important um, to, to sort of really be upfront about what your expectations are from the doctor. And the doctor will let you know whether he or she can do that. Um, I, you know, one, of the, one of the things that I've really been you know, toying with lately is how much of the doctor-patient relationship has to be paternalistic and how much can be more egalitarian. And I think the model has always been to be egalitarian. Um, where the patient and a doctor really are working together towards something, towards a common goal. But the way that will happen is by effective communication. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like what you're saying, like, it, it, that, you know, Martin Buber talks about how you know, the difference between an I-thou and an I-it relationship, right? And yeah. And it sounds like some patients might come in quite ready for you to be the subject and them to be the object, right? Like, you're the I, I'm the it. And just because it's an uncomfortable situation, I'm anxious. I, I, I just want to get this, get through this. Or get, but what you're saying is, hey, we, it would be better if this was a little more I, thou, if, if, if we were both subjects here. Like we were both, there, there is, there's no object here. We're both subjects, you know, working together from different roles and different angles. But, but if you're a subject, not an object, that this is going to work a lot better. Yeah. I mean, I think the most, like elegant way I've, I've heard this phrase is by Abraham Vergesi where he says, you know, the patient's basically telling the story. Um, and as a doctor, your job is to be like the co-narrator of the story and get that patient to the ending that, that the patient deserves. So the patient comes in saying, you know, I have a fever, I have a cold. And your job as the doctor is to sort of get the full narrative out of the patient do the exam where you're going to actually get all the clues and evidence. And then together with the patient, you're going to get to the conclusion. But I really like that metaphor because it's the idea that the patient's actually writing the story, but you're there to sort of be their editor. You're there to be their guide. And then together when the finished product is done, maybe you're co-authors. I love the sound of that. I think that's amazing. And I mean, you're a guy also, just because we've exchanged a few emails, you have some literary sensibilities and you, I, I can imagine you liking a metaphor like that. Do you think that's representative of your peers? Something that story based, uh, or like, do you, does that grab them the way it grabs you? <laughs> well, I, I I think some, not all. I know that part of medical education training now, like all medical students, um, are encouraged to read for pleasure, to write for pleasure, to really work on this idea of building narratives. Um, there's a whole field called narrative medicine that really works hard towards that goal. Um, you know, there are some doctors, particularly surgeons, who really sort of like. I see something, I'm going to fix it. Like, there's no story. Like, broken bone, let me fix it. Um, there are other doctors who I think get into it more for the stories because they like the relationships that build out of those stories. But I think even, you know, even in something like surgery, the best surgeons have these amazing relationships with their patients where they do feel like they were a co-narrator or a co-author of that patient's story and they never, you know, lose contact with the patient on an emotional basis. So yeah, the patient, I think it's a model. The patient's a person, not just a pathology. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The, the, the patient, you always have to remember that, that yes, there might be something exciting about the case. There might be something very interesting about the case. But the, to me, when I say what's my bet, what's the, what's the best kind of patient? 
the best kind of patient is really the best kind of person, the person who comes in, who wants to engage with you, wants to work with you and really have a, a, a really you know, collegial um, relationship as you build towards improving their health. Well, I, I thanks for writing this book because I, I think that it's such a common phenomenon, right? Where everybody gets sick, but yeah. you you really illuminate uh, the 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 phenomena of doctoring in a way that I think it would be incredibly edifying and helpful to to doctor and patient alike, which is not an, an easy thing to do. Perfect. Well, I, 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 that you said it better than I could have said it. So I appreciate that encapsulation of the book. That's, that's really what I was trying to get at. Um, really show people what doctors do on a regular basis, but also some of the more hidden sides of the field. So I really appreciate the chance to talk with you about it today. Hey, I, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Andrew for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Doctor. You will not regret it. Thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.